0: good morning. If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn to the book of Deuteronomy. Our time together this morning will be greatly helped and much more enjoyable for you if you follow along in a copy of God's Word. If you do not have a Bible with you, you should be able to find one underneath the seat in front of you or near you. Uh, Deuteronomy 31 is where you should be turning to now. You should be able to find that on page 173. If you're not very familiar with the Bible, large numbers are chapter numbers. Smaller numbers are verse numbers. I'm going to begin reading in just a moment in Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 14. But before I do, just to uh, remind us where we are, last time we learned that there are four songs in the Bible that are called the songs of Moses. Exodus chapter 15, verses 1 through 21. Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 30. To chapter 32, verse 47. Next time we'll be together, we'll look at Psalm 90. And then finally, Revelation chapter 15, verses 3 through 4. And then we gave our attention to Exodus chapter 15 in particular, and we saw that participation in the praise of God leads people to trust in the promises of God. There, as they celebrate God's greatest act of deliverance in the Old Testament, the Exodus. Their participation in his praises led them to trust in his promises. But immediately after that song, if you go back and just look at Exodus 15 later this afternoon, make yourself a note. Before you even get to the end of the chapter, Israel rebels. And that things begin to go from bad to worse from that moment to this in the book of Deuteronomy. The people who have been delivered by God in this great and marvelous and wonderful way where he brings them out of the land of Egypt and doesn't kill their children like the Egyptians. And brings them to the edge of the sea and doesn't destroy them like he does the Egyptians. Grumble. We don't have what we want. We want to go back to Egypt. Grumbling is a sin. They complain. I don't like the way that you're doing this. Complaining is a sin. And they make idols because those promises still seem too far off. They want to trust in those promises, but they all haven't happened immediately. And then ultimately, they refuse to enter the land that God brings them all the way to the edge of. Their sin, from Exodus chapter 15, through the book of Leviticus, through the book of Numbers, into the book of Deuteronomy, provoked God. And so now, if we're reading through our Bible, after waiting on a generation of people to die in the book of Numbers, that's what the book of Numbers is, reminding us that an entire generation of people who were unfaithful, disobedient, distrusting, grumbling, complaining, needed to die because of their sins, God brings a new generation of people all the way back to the edge of the promised land as we wait for the very last Israelite of that previous faithless generation, Moses, to die. And what does he do? He gives them another song as God calls Moses and Joshua together into the tent of meeting for a peaceful transition of power. That's where we're gonna begin reading. Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 14. We have a lot of Bible reading to do today. So, I'm going to encourage you to keep your Bible open the entire time. Moses writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he speaks to us with the same authority as if Jesus Christ himself were here speaking to us today. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, the days approach when you must die. Call Joshua and present yourself in the tent of meeting that I may commission him. And Moses and Joshua went and presented themselves in the tent of meeting. And the Lord appeared in the tent in a pillar of cloud. And the pillar of cloud stood over the entrance of the tent. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, you are about to lie down with your fathers. Then this people will rise and whore after the foreign gods among them in the land that they are entering. And they will forsake me and break my covenant that I have made with them. Then my anger will be kindled against them in that day, and I will forsake them and hide my face from them, and they will be devoured. And many evils and troubles will come upon them, so that they will say in that day, have not these evils come upon us, because our God is not among us. And I will surely hide my face in that day, because of all the evil that they have done, because they have turned to other gods. Now, therefore, write this song and teach it to the people of Israel. Put it in their mouths that this song may be a witness for me against the people of Israel. For when I have brought them into the land flowing with milk and honey, which I swore to give to their fathers, and they have eaten and are full and grown fat, they will turn to other gods and serve them and despise me and break my covenant. And when many evils and troubles have come upon them, this song shall confront them as a witness, for it will live unforgotten in the mouths of their offspring. For I know what they are inclined to do even today before I have brought them into the land that I swore to give. So Moses wrote this song the same day and taught it to the people of Israel. And the Lord commissioned Joshua, the son of Nun, and said, Be strong and courageous, for you shall bring the people of Israel into the land that I swore to give to them. I will be with you. When Moses had finished writing the words of this law in a book to the very end, Moses commanded the Levites who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, Take this book of the law and put it by the side of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, that it may be there for a witness against you. For I know how rebellious and stubborn you are. Behold, even today, while I am yet alive with you, you have been rebellious against the Lord. How much more after my death? Assemble to me all the elders of your tribes and all your officers, that I may speak the words in the ears of them and call heaven and earth to witness against them For I know that after my death, you will surely act corruptly and turn aside from the way that I've commanded you. And in the days to come, evil will befall you because you will do what is evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger through the works of your hands. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us today as we give our attention to your word. As we are learning today, Father, you've given us this word to point us both backward and forward to remind us of what has happened so that we might live positively and faithfully in the future so that we might live in light of the promises that are ours in Christ father we ask that you would help us help us to understand this afresh we pray, Father, that you would write these words on our hearts, that you would mature us in the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Father, that you would preserve us from rebellion. Father, that you would spare us from turning away from you. Father, that you would forgive us for the ways that we have provoked you and you would help us to throw off the sins that continue to provoke you, that we might be a pure and holy people. And we ask all of this, in the name of our God who has revealed himself to us, As Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen. Amen. Warnings are good. Don't touch that. It's hot. You'll burn yourself. Slow down. That's a dangerous curve. You'll run off the road. Poison. Do not drink that or you'll die. Caution. Wet floor. Run and you'll slip. Warnings are good. Gracious reminders that seek to protect us from danger and harm. And that is precisely what we have here in the song, a warning. This is a song of warning, a warning that actually points us backward and forward at the very same time as it testifies against the people of Israel for their great apostasy. Look again in verse 19 of chapter 31. Now, therefore, write this song and teach it to the people of Israel, put it in their mouths that this song may be a witness for me against the people of Israel. Like a witness in a murder trial who is pointing his finger at the accused and says, that's the man. That is the one that I saw. He's the one who did it. He's guilty. This song testifies against the people of Israel as it reminds them why they're here, past unfaithfulness of previous generations, and warns them against future disobedience even before it happens. Pointing them backward to what has happened, pointing them forward to what God knows will happen. Just look at the end of the song. Verse 30, chapter 32, verse 44. Moses came and recited all the words of this song in the hearing of the people. He and Joshua, the son of Nun. And when Moses had finished speaking all these words to all Israel, he said to them, take to heart all the words by which I am warning you today that you may command them to your children, that they may be careful to do all the words of this law, for it is no empty word for you, but your very life. And by this word, you shall live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. A witness against them, A warning for them, a loving song that God intends to fall, verse 2, like gentle rain on tender grass, on the tender grass of their, verse 46, hard hearts, the hard hearts of the people, that they and their children may be careful to do all the words of this law because God is zealous for the holiness of his people. So zealous, in fact, that he issues three warnings in this song. Notice first, a warning against forgetfulness. Look with me in chapter 31 now, back at the beginning of the song, verse 30. Then Moses spoke the words of this song until they were finished in the ears of all the assembly of Israel. Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak. And let the earth hear the words of my mouth. May my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, like gentle rain upon the tender grass and like showers upon the herb. For I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God, the rock. His work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. They have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are crooked and twisted generation." Do you thus repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? Is not he your father who created you, who made you and established you? Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father and he will show you. Your elders and they will tell you. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the people according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is his allotted heritage. He found him in a desert land and in the howling waste of the wilderness. He encircled him. He cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings and catching them, bearing them on its pinions. The Lord alone will guide them. No foreign God was with him. He made him ride on the high places of the land and he ate the produce of the field and he suckled him with honey out of the rock and oil out of the flinty rock, curds from the herd and milk from the flock with fat of lambs and rams of Bashan and goats with the very finest of the wheat and you drank foaming wine and mate from the brood of the grape, the blood of the grape. But Jeshurun grew fat and kicked, you grew fat, stout and sleek. Then he forsook God who made him and scoffed at the rock of his salvation. They stirred him to jealousy with strange gods. With abominations they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods that they had never known, to new gods that had come recently whom your fathers had never dreaded. You were unmindful of the rock that bore you and you forgot the God who gave you birth. Earlier in the book of Deuteronomy, if you go back and start rereading through the book of the Deuteronomy, one of the things you'll see is that Moses tells the privileged generation in chapter 4, verse 9, that they're to take care. They're to take care to remember so that they do not forget. They're to take care so that they keep their soul diligently, so that they do not lose sight of everything that God has done. He doesn't want them to forget things that their eyes have seen. God's deliverance and God's judgment. God's judgment. He doesn't want them to forget what their ears have heard, promises of God's mercy and promises of God's wrath. Why? So that they do not depart from it all the days of their life. And now here at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, Moses gives a similar admonition to the people in the form of the song in verse seven, verse chapter 32. Remember the days of old. The word remember is an incredibly important word in the Bible. It is used 14 times in the book of Deuteronomy alone to remember the people of Israel protect themselves. They remember the exodus from Egypt by celebrating Passover every spring and God's great deliverance, his greatest act of mercy, bringing them out. They remember their need for atonement by celebrating and observing Yom Kippur every fall, remembering that they themselves cannot cleanse themselves from their sins. Even in the New Testament, the need for Christians to remember is Peter's explicit purpose in writing both of his letters. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. And both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. The word remember is an important word in the Bible because as we remember the words of God, we remember the works of God, and that causes us to remember the promises of God, And the very person of God, the very thing that Moses draws their attention to first as he writes the song for them. You see it in verse 3 I will proclaim the name of the Lord. I will ascribe greatness to our God. He is a great God, a mighty God. All of his work is perfect, all of his ways are just. He is faithful, he is without iniquity. Moses is reminding them of the God they serve and of the God that delivered them. It's an important word throughout the Bible an important concept for biblical faith. And friends, that teaches us that forgetfulness is not neutral. Our forgetfulness of the ways of God and our forgetfulness of the person of God is not simply absent-mindedness on our part. We are to remember God. We are to wake up and think of God. We are to remember him throughout the day. We are to go to bed at the end of our day, let our waning thoughts be on God. Brothers and sisters, let me ask, how many times throughout your day do you remember the great works of God? And how often do you find yourself recalling all that he has said to us? To not remember is to replace. To not remember God is to replace him with something else or some other God, which is exactly what the people of Israel did when they forgot God here in the song, verse 17. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods to gods that they had never known, to new gods that had come recently whom your fathers had never dreaded. Israel forgot, verse 3, the greatness of God. And they forgot, verse 4, the wonderful work of God, work to redeem them out of the house of slavery, work to fight enemies on their behalf, work to provide for them in a barren wasteland, work to literally give them bread day by day, Worked to reveal himself to them by his law so that they might be able to draw near. And what is the result? The result of all of their forgetfulness is not neutrality. It's that they turned to idols. Verse 15. But Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. You grew fat, stout, and sleek. Then he forsook God who made him and scoffed at the rock of his salvation They stirred him to jealousy with strange gods. and abominations, they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently whom your fathers had never dreaded. You were unmindful. You had forgotten the rock that bore you, and you forgot the God who gave you birth. Though God was faithful, though he was without iniquity, though he was, verse 6, their father, who created them. Though he had been strong and sure and secure, verse four, like the rock, his people turned away. And they worshiped what is false. And they did what is false. And they became false. And they were unmindful of the rock that bore them. Their prosperity blinded them. Even though God had been like a mother and a father, Bringing them life, choosing to be merciful to them out of all of the nations, not because they were good, not because they were great, not because they had anything to offer, as we saw earlier in our own service, even though he, verse 10, kept them as the apple of his eye, the very center of his affection, even though he, verse 12, guided them when they needed him most, their prosperity blinded them. Even though he gave them everything that they need and provided for them abundantly, verse 14, they turned away. Friends, let me ask you Has God's prosperity blinded you? His kindness for your general health and to give you what you need or more than you need blinded you to who he is and what he says about sin? It blinded the people of Israel. It made them blind to all that God had done. It made them blind to all that God was doing. It made them blind to all that God had promised that he would do. It made them blind to their actions thinking it's not that bad. God wouldn't give prosperous things to us if our sin was that big of a deal. How deceptive. How many times do we say God blesses that person? Why? Because they have something. The prosperity blinded them. And throughout all of it, what did they do? Verse 17, they desired novelty. New gods. Why would we worship the God of our fathers? That's old. That's boring. In their prosperity, Israel traded the worship of the living God for the latest religious fad. And friends, we must be careful to not do the same. The song's warning against forgetfulness is in the context of prosperity. Have you ever wondered... While when you're reading through the Bible, there are no warnings about the spiritual dangers of poverty and hunger. That all of the spiritual dangers about riches and wealth and good health, because in those moments, we forget God. Prosperity blinds us to all that God has done and to all that God is doing and to all that God has promised to do. How many times in your desperation, when you need God most, Are you most serious about God and most faithful in those moments? And as soon as things change, there's just a little less need, less desire to pray, and less urgency to get out the door to church, and less fervor in your Bible reading. The very same thing for the people here. Their prosperity blinded them to all that God had promised But God is zealous for the holiness of his people. So he warns them against forgetfulness. Do not forget. I know what you're going to do. I know what you have done. Do not forget. I desire your holiness and I desire to be near you. A warning against forgetfulness. Note a second, a warning against provoking God. Look in verse 19 of chapter 32. The Lord saw it and spurned them. Because of the provocation of his sons and daughters. And he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be, for they are a perverse generation, children in whom there is no faithfulness. Now, remember, God is saying this as there's a new generation of people about to enter the promised land. He's already saying what he knows to be true of them. They have made me jealous with what is no God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. So I will make them jealous with those who are no people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. For a fire is kindled by my anger. And it burns to the depths of Sheol, devours the earth and its increase. And sets on fire the foundations of the mountains. And I will heap disasters upon them. I will spin my arrows on them. They shall be wasted with hunger. And devoured by plague and poisonous pestilence. I will send the teeth of beasts against them with the venom of things that crawl in the dust. Outdoors the sword shall bereave them. And indoor terror for young man and woman alike, the nursing child and the man of gray hairs. I would have said, I will cut them to pieces. I will wipe them from human memory had i not feared provocation by the enemy lest their adversaries should misunderstand lest they should say our hand is triumphant it was not the lord who it, it was not the lord who did all this for they are a nation void of counsel and there is no understanding in them if they were wise they would understand this they would discern their latter end how could one have chased a thousand and two have put 10000 to flight unless their rock had sold them and the lord had given them up For their rock is not as our rock. Our enemies are by themselves. For their vine comes from the vine of Sodom and from the fields of Gomorrah. Their grapes are grapes of poison. Their clusters are bitter. Their wine is the poison of serpents and the cruel venom of asps. Be careful, the song says, not to forget God. Because forgetting God actually provokes God to jealousy, what the text says. And his jealousy will provoke divine judgment from God. Verse 19. The Lord saw it and he spurned them because of the provocation of his sons and daughters. And he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be for they are a perverse generation, children in whom is no faithfulness. They have made me jealous. Their provocation of God was not neutral. It provoked God to jealousy and it results in God's curse, a curse that falls on all who incite God's judgment. There will be anger anger And there will be fire. As verse 21, those who worship what is no God are now made jealous by those who are no people. And there will be no escape from the fire and anger of God's wrath. It will burn even to the place of the dead, verse 22. For a fire is kindled by my anger and it burns to the depths of Sheol, devours the earth in its increase, and sets on fire the foundations of the mountains. From verses 23 to 25, hunger, pestilence, beasts, to sword, siege, death. The Lord will cut them down for their evil. It does not go unnoticed. It will not go unpunished but he will not stamp them out, verse 26. I would have said, I will cut them to pieces. I will wipe them from human memory had I not feared provocation by the enemy, lest their adversaries should misunderstand, lest they should say, our hand is triumphant. It was not the Lord who did all this. Israel deserves annihilation, but God will not give their enemies the satisfaction he will have compassion. Friends, the the absurdity of the song is that in the midst of God revealing who he is, great, wise, just, without iniquity, and revealing who these people are, evil, wicked, deserving of judgment, God still has compassion on the people that are his people who are living like his enemies, so his enemies will not misunderstand. He does not want his people to misunderstand. He does not want his enemies to misunderstand. He will have compassion. He will have compassion even though he knows Israel is, verse 28, a nation of misunderstanding who will think that God's compassion means their innocence, that his mercy means tolerance, That his delay of judgment means acceptance. Friends, have we not done the same? That God's compassion makes us think that we're not that bad. That his mercy towards us makes us think that he is tolerant of the things that we do. That God's delay in judgment means that he actually accepts the way that we are living. Because he did not open the ground and swallow us whole. The compassion of God's judgment causes them to misunderstand, so that verse 29, they do not discern their latter end. I wonder, friends, if that could be the same for you. That God's compassion, his patience, his mercy, which is meant to lead you to repentance is actually causing you to indulge in your sin and provoke God to further anger and misunderstand your latter end. Sin undealt with will be judged. Does the delay of God's judgment embolden you? I got away with it today, and I'll get away with it tomorrow, and I'll get away with it the next day. That's not a 21st century phenomena that's always been true of people. Or does it lead you to repentance? God is zealous for the holiness of his people in this song, even as he knows what is before them. So he warns them, he warns them, do not forget. Do not forget what I have done. I have delivered you, and do not forget what I have done. I have judged your ancestors. And do not provoke me to anger. As I judge them, I will judge you. It's a warning against forgetfulness and a warning against provocation. Notice third, it's also a warning to obey. Look at verse 34 of the song. Is not this laid up in store with me, sealed up in my treasuries? Vengeance is mine, and recompense for the time When their foot shall slip, for the day of their calamity is at hand, and their doom comes swiftly. For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. When he sees that their power is gone, and there is none remaining, bond or free, then he will say, Where are their gods? The rock in which they took refuge, who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offering. Let them rise up and help you, let them be your protection. See now that I, even I, am he. And there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. And there is none that can deliver out of my hand. For I lift up my hand to heaven and swear. As I live forever, if I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will take vengeance on my adversaries and will repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood and my sword shall devour flesh with the blood of the slain and the captives from the long-haired, long-haired heads of the enemy. Rejoice with him, O heavens. Bow down to him, all gods. For he avenges the blood of his children and takes vengeance on his adversaries. He repays those who hate him and cleanses his people's land. The bad fruit produced by bad and evil lives is known to God. The book of Deuteronomy is very clear about that. This song is very clear about that. Frankly, the entire Bible is very clear about that. The warning that we see here, we see many times in the New Testament, it does not go unnoticed. It does not go unseen, and it will not go unpunished. And yet in his mercy, God continues to expose the foolishness of his people's trust. As they turn away from him, he mercifully exposes their foolishness, their trust in false gods. Where are they now? And he exposes their false beliefs. I thought that they would be with you. He exposes all of their false hopes by giving them over to their enemies. And then mercifully, the song says at the proper time, the Lord will be the avenger. He will judge the false gods of the false people because verse 39, only he can kill and only he can make alive. He can wound and heal and no power in heaven above or on earth beneath can deliver out of his hand. So the song calls the Israelites to sing the praise of God who avenges the blood of his servants and brings judgment on his enemies and forgives their sin. Notice the irony of what it calls them to as it reveals their bankruptcy in verse 43. Rejoice with him, O heavens, and bow down to him, all God's. For he avenges the blood of his children and takes vengeance on his adversaries. He avenges the blood of his children that he judged with their enemies by judging their enemies. He repays those who hate him. He will discipline the very instruments of his affliction and he will cleanse his people's land. The word cover or cleanse here is also translated to make atonement. If you have a footnote in your Bible, if you have at the bottom, it'll probably say that there for you. To make atonement. And it is the exact same word that we saw last week when we were studying during Holy Week in Leviticus 16. As God judges the enemies that he sent to punish his people, he also acts, the song teaches us, to make atonement for them for their rebellion. He defeats their enemies, enemies that he sent, and he makes atonement for their sins, sins that he knew that they would commit. And he cleanses his land, land that they polluted, but he sent them into anyways. And he and he alone can do this. Friends, I wonder, are you aware that it is only God who can forgive you of your sin? Or do you think that somehow, even today, that we are somehow different than these people, that we can manage our relationship with God by our good deeds? From beginning to end, the Bible is very clear God and God alone is the one who forgives people of their sins. And God and God alone is the one who makes atonement for his people. The end of Israel's enemies and the atonement God provides is actually meant to spur them forward. What they're supposed to see in this cyclical pattern that we begin to see in the Bible, as God redeems and they fall back and then he judges and then he redeems and they fall back and then he judges and then he redeems and they fall back and then he he judges. What it's meant to do is to spur them forward to obedience, to see that God is merciful and kind and compassionate and does not treat sinners as their sins deserve. Right there in the key of all of the passage, we see it again in verse 44. Moses came and recited all the words of this song in the hearing of the people. He and Joshua, the son of Nun. And when Moses had finished speaking all these words to Israel, he said to them, Take to heart all the words by which I am warning you today. Now, just, I want you to try to imagine what it was like for the people. They're on the precipice of the promised land. They see the bright shores before them. Surely nobody's thinking, we're going in there and we're gonna be unfaithful to God. Just like nobody stands right here and holds hands and recites vows when I'm reading them and says, I vow today that I'm going to commit adultery The absurdity of the moment. Moses warns them, I know what is before you. I know that you will go in there and you will turn away. Take to heart all the words by which I'm warning you today. That you may command them to your children. Why? So that they don't forget. That they may be careful to do all the words of this law. Why? So that they do not become judged so that you don't forget by teaching them, so that they don't forget by distance. For it is no empty word for you, but your very life. And by this word you shall live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. Now we come to the end of the passage, the interpretive key, verses 44 through 47, and we wrongly think that the language of be careful to do all the words of this law means that God is commanding them to obey the law so that he might love them. That is often how we read the Bible, and it is always wrong when we read it that way. God never works that way. Obey this so that I will love you. God's law is always, even now, always preceded by God's grace. His act of salvation always precedes his command. God's love always comes before his ordinance. It was true in the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, and that is true in the New Testament, under the New Covenant which is why there is a final declaration of undeserved mercy at the end of the song. Look again in chapter 32, verse 35. Vengeance is mine and recompense for the time when their foot shall slip. For the day of their calamity is at hand and their doom comes swiftly. For the Lord will vindicate his people. He promises, I know they'll slip I know that calamity is coming because of their actions, but I will vindicate my people. I will have compassion on my servants when I see that their power is gone and there is none remaining, bond or free. Now, drop to verse 43. Rejoice with him, O heavens. Bow thou to, down to him, all gods, for he avenges the blood of his children and he takes vengeance on his adversaries. He repays those who hate him. He cleanses his people's land. He will punish his people's persecutors and he will atone for their sins. A witness and a warning to the deep and abiding love of God for his people because God is zealous for the holiness of his people. Amid the horrors of all the judgment that they will experience, God reminds them that hope will shine forth. The language here is that of vengeance and vindication. God will judge all the people. Those who call themselves his people will be seen to be not his people, and they will be judged by no gods and those who are of no people. And he will use his enemies to do it. But in due time, there will be restoration, for the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. It won't happen by some magical wave of the wand either, though. God won't simply say, you're forgiven, no big deal. The Lord will provide a cleansing to make atonement for the people and that leads them to worship in verse 43. Rejoice, rejoice, heavens. Bow down to him, all gods, for he avenges the blood of his children and takes vengeance on his adversaries. He repays those who hate him. He cleanses his people's land. Friends, God provides the cleansing to make atonement and that leads to worship. God provides the cleansing for his people so that they might be able to draw near to him in the promised land. We saw it last week in the book of Leviticus. The whole drama of redemption was not simply so that they might be forgiven of their sins. Their sins must be forgiven. Your sins must be forgiven. If you're not a Christian here today, if you're not someone who identifies as a believer, we're here to tell you, the Bible is very clear. You are a sinner. You have broken God's law. You have disobeyed God's command. You have chosen to live life the way that you want to live it. And you have decided that God is wrong and that you're going to do it your way. You're going to have relationships on your terms. You're going to come to church when you feel like it. You're going to obey God when it's convenient for you. You're going to do things the way that you would like to do them. And God calls that sin. And your sin is not simply a blemish on your life. Your sin is actually something that devastates your life and separates you from God. It separates you from God. It blinds you to the severity of your sin. It keeps you ultimately, the Bible teaches us, here, just like we saw last week, from being able to draw near to God, it separated you from him. And because of your sin, you'll never be able to draw near unless God makes atonement. And friend, if you're not a Christian, we're here to tell you that you're in the best of all possible places today, that God has made atonement for sin. God, in his great mercy, made atonement for sin, not simply by the blood of bulls and goats, by sending forth his son, Jesus Christ, to live a perfect and holy and righteous life, to be obedient, to be faithful, to be pure and to be perfect in every way. He never sinned. He was always pure. He always did what was right. He always thought the right thing. He always said the right thing. And at the end of his life, though he deserved no judgment, he suffered on a cross and he died as your substitute. And now he extends an unbelievable, merciful, kind invitation to all who would draw near that if you would believe in his substitutionary death, that he died in your place. If you would believe that God resurrected him from the dead, vindicating him, that you too could be forgiven of all of your sins and raised to everlasting life just like Jesus. Friends, we're here to tell you today that God has made atonement for sin definitively in the person of Christ. And if you would like to learn more about that, we would love to tell you more about that. You are in the best of all possible places. Come find me at that tunnel following the service. I'll be standing there shaking hands. Find Pastor Will who's presiding over the service today. He would love to speak with you. But Find one of our members. They would love to open the Bible with you. Or take one of those copies of God's Word home and begin to read the Gospels. Read the Gospel of Mark and learn about Jesus Christ. The song is a witness and a warning witnessing a warning, calling the Israelites to see God's act of salvation in the same way that the words of the Great Commission come at the end of Christ's saving event. After his life, death, burial, resurrection, Jesus then instructs his disciples to observe all that I've commanded you. He does not say, go and observe all that I've commanded you and I'll deal with it later or so that I might love you. Jesus deals with their sin problem definitively, and then after dealing with their sin problem definitively, resurrected from the grave, he sends them out into all the world and says, teach others to obey my commands, and now let them know that they can obey my commands because I have forgiven them of their sin, I have sent my spirit to dwell within them so that they might obey them, and I will be with them to the end of the age. Atonement for sin actually is the motivation from the Old Testament to the New Testament to obey God's command. Friends, obedience does not bring about God's love. God's love motivates our obedience, which is actually why the author of Hebrews picks up this verse in his exposition. If you have your Bible, I want you to flip to Hebrews chapter 10. In God's providence, last week we were in Hebrews 9 from Leviticus 16, and this week we're in Hebrews 10 from Deuteronomy 32. Hebrews chapter 10 Because atonement has been made. Brothers, since we have confidence to enter into the holy places so that we can now draw near to God by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way. You want new gods? Here's the new covenant. This is the way to draw near, that he opened for us through the curtain. That is through Jesus' flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, exhortation number one. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us draw near because God has forgiven our sins. Exhortation number two, verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. Because we remember the definitive sacrifice in his atonement and forgiveness of sins. We draw near without wavering because God is faithful. He will keep his promises. Exhortation number three, verse 24. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. And how does he envision us stirring one another up? Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. He's not simply saying encourage one another. By all means, encourage one another. He's saying encourage one another to gather with one another. We have the distinct privilege of being able to gather together as the people of God and to be reminded of the promises of God and that the promises of God extend to people beyond ourselves, and yet we neglect it. So the apostle says, stir one another up to assemble together. Verse 26. Notice how he sees disobedience to the three exhortations. For if we go on sinning deliberately, if we go on sinning by not drawing near with full assurance, not having our bodies sprinkled clean, if we go on sinning deliberately by wavering from the promises and not trusting God, If we go on sinning deliberately by not stirring one another up to love and to good works and to assemble together, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and outraged the Spirit of grace? Here's Deuteronomy 32. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. From Old Testament to New Testament, it is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. Do not trifle with sin. Do not reject God's mercy. How do Christians apply the Song of Moses in the 21st century? The book of Hebrews helps us and teaches us. Do you hear the words of warning? Disobedience to the word of God the command of God, the law of God, the teaching of God is the exact same thing as profaning the blood of Jesus Christ who shed his blood to cleanse us from all of our sins. When we consciously disobey God's word, we're saying we don't care about that sacrifice. When we willfully reject what God has intended for us, we are consciously rejecting the Son of God. When we turn away from God's commands, we are turning away from Christ. There is no such thing as a Christian who chooses to have Jesus to forgive them of their sins and at the same time simultaneously says, I'm going to disobey what God commands. The book of Hebrews tells us it is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of that God. Vengeance is his. He will repay because that person doesn't understand that they are still God's enemy. Friends, how do we apply this, fellow members of this church? We are to stir one another up to love and to good works, gathering together, assembling, singing together, praying together, sharing our faith with one another, not just unbelievers, but also unbelievers, sharing our faith in what we learn together that we might encourage one another as the day of God is drawing near, building one another up, stirring each other up to fulfill the covenant vows that we have committed to as members of this church. Members of this church. How are you doing in fulfilling those vows? And when was the last time you looked at the front of your membership directory and reminded yourselves that you have made those vows to other members of this church? Fellow members of this church, are you stirring one another up to love and to good works? And friend who is here who calls himself a believer but consciously turns away from God's command. We're here to tell you that there is no safety and no assurance in that position. It is possible to be a believer and to sin and to sin grievously. But friends, it is also possible to think of yourselves as a believer and to not be a believer at all. It is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of an angry God. The author of Hebrews tells us how to apply this passage to stir one another up and he helps us see what the Apostle Paul also helps us see, that this promise is for all nations. Now I want you to take your Bible and I want you to flip with me to Romans chapter 15. The book of Deuteronomy is one of the most quoted books in the Bible, Deuteronomy and Isaiah. If you're gonna study two Old Testament books and you don't study the rest very closely, study the book of Deuteronomy, study the book of Isaiah. Give your life to understanding those two books and you will read your New Testament better. Because you find, as you read through the New Testament, lots of references to Isaiah and lots of references to the book of Deuteronomy. The reconstitution of the people, Deuteronomos, second giving of the law, and Isaiah, the messianic vision, Jesus Christ coming. And as we read through the New Testament, we find passages like this in Romans chapter 15, how the Apostle Paul applies Deuteronomy. This song again, verse 8. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness, in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, and in order, thanks be to God, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, as it is written. Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again, it is said in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 43. Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, to him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing So that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. God's zeal for the holiness of his people is so that that gospel that he has called them to believe in, that good news of salvation might be declared among the nations, so that that light might shine among all peoples, so that people who do not live in the right geographic place, the land of Israel, and so that people who do not have the right genealogical line, descendants of Israel, might participate with them in the praise of God and worship the one true and living God with them. Friends, these promises that Deuteronomy is highlighting and underlining and reminding us of as a witness and a warning so that we don't forget and remember so that we see God's mercy and obey were to be a bright light for all peoples, a bright light for us today so that we might have hope as we draw near in full assurance of that good news being our good news. God sent forth his son for us, for you. And friends, that is good news indeed. As God's people are poised to enter the promised land, Moses is commanded to do some astounding things, to transition power and be reminded that he will never see the land because of his sin, and to give them a song, but not the kind of song that we would expect. We would expect it to be a very energetic praise song. And yet, what he's giving them is a witness against them and a warning to them. A song not celebrating their freedom in the Lord and their exodus from Egypt, but a song that is reminding them of their slavery to sin and their persistence in idolatry. A witness and a warning. And friends, here we are at the precipice, the end of all things, awaiting the imminent return of Christ. And we will sing a song in Jordan Stormy Banks, calling us like this song to faithfulness, a witness and a warning, reminding us of what God has done and what God will do. He will bring us safely home and a warning to us that anybody here who is disobedient to this God who does not claim the mercy of the Savior that he has sent to cover for our sins, it is a very dangerous place indeed. But to all who have hope in him, they stand on that shore with great hope, with true hearts and full assurance. So as we sing, let us stir one another up to love and good works. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us today right now in our singing, to stir one another up to love and good works, to see that our primary ministry right now in this moment is to sing together and with one another and to one another, reminding each other of these precious promises that are ours in Christ. We thank you for this song, this witness, and this warning. We pray that we would take heed lest we fall. And Father, we pray that it would be a witness to us of your love, your mercy, your grace. And may that love, mercy, grace, atonement motivate us to obey and to sing with glad hearts, we pray. We ask all of this in Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand and sing with us?